Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, hello and good evening. Thanks for your company here on ADH-TV. I hope you're loving the new two hours of nightly viewing with Fred Paul. Does a good job, doesn't he, Fred? But see, he's got a brain that helps. Plenty of things happening and plenty of great people to speak to tonight. Tell your friends and your family where to find us. Just search ADH-TV. That's all they have to do on the Apple TV app store or the Google Play store on your television. Click download and they can start watching. It's easy. Well, the New South Wales Transport Minister, David Elliott, came into the studio last night to talk to me about his withdrawal from the New South Wales Deputy Liberal Leadership. The Premier Dominic Perrottet and his supporters were backing Matt Keane, the Energy Minister and the Treasurer, to be Deputy. The one question I have for the Premier is this, what's the definition of a sellout? I was at a dinner with Dominic Perrottet a few months back, we all had to speak, and he spoke, and he said he was willing to cop political heat if it meant correcting the course of the Liberal Party to once again be a party of conservatism, freedom and fiscal responsibility. I believed him and I gave him many raps. But it's now clear to me he didn't mean what he said. Matt Keane should be the deputy leader of the Greens, not the Liberal Party. This is the beginning of the end for the Perrottet government. Viewers have sent me feedback from my interview last night with David Elliott. Satish writes, quote, after 38 years, I'm done with the Liberal Party. They are now destined for oblivion. D writes, Perrottet should resign. He's not leadership material. Cheryl writes, God help us. What has Keane got on the Premier? I can't think of any other reason for his undying support of this misplaced greenie. Marilyn writes, if Matt Keane becomes Deputy Leader of the New South Wales Liberals, I will not be voting Liberal. My entire adult life, I voted Liberal, but for me, this is the line in the sand. One nation is looking good. And Valerie writes, be very afraid, Mr Perrottet. Keane will bring your government down, unquote. Well, there are stacks more, not to mention emails and text messages to me. I will be having something to say in detail on the program tonight about Matt Keane. It won't be charitable. Premier Perrottet may as well resign and let Keane be Premier because Keane is the one really running the state, badly. Premier, you'd be familiar with Mark chapter 8, verse 36, quote, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Unquote. Well, just like Morrison's self-described pragmatic Liberal government, this New South Wales government needs a reality check and only voters can deliver that next March. Keep watching as we cross to Peggy Grandy to get the latest news from America and the FBI raid on Donald Trump's Florida home. I'll also speak with the foreign editor of the Australian newspaper, Greg Sheridan, about the Chinese threat. Greg has suggested that the world moved a few steps closer to war this week. And in a moment, what does the passage of this energy bill mean for you? As always, you can have your say on anything you see on the show. Email me at alanjones at adh.tv, alanjones at adh.tv. You are watching ADH-TV. Look, the Labor Party's climate change bill aimed at legislating a 2030 43% reduction in carbon dioxide emissions 
as compared to 2005 levels. As you are aware, I'm sure the legislation has passed the lower house of the Australian Parliament. A long way to go yet, though. In one sense, the Albanese government and its ideological supporters are right. This will transform the economy and industry, but not the kind of transformation they're talking about. This will prove disastrous. Nonetheless, the fact that there is legislation, not yet in law, has now inspired the woke corporates to join the climate alarmists, Westpac. Why would you bank with them? They have released a raft of new emissions targets for 2030 and proudly announced that they've signed the United Nations convened Net Zero Banking Alliance. Now stay with me, because this is about you. All of this is done without any explanation to the borrower or the voter or the farmer who might need finance. What hoops are you going to have to jump through to qualify for a loan? Back to Westpac and its mates, inspired by the Labor government's commitment to reduce emissions by 43% by 2030. And indeed, Labor projects that renewable energy will lift to 80% of electricity supply, at least by 2030, 80%, some say 82%. It's currently less than 30. But the woke and the bedwetters are on the climate change bandwagon. They were there in Glasgow falling over themselves about the scourge of carbon dioxide emissions, but parked their jets at the airport on their way to practising their hypocrisy. The point I want to make is this, before I illustrate the concern. No one has told us how they'll get to 43% or 80% renewables, who's going to be punished and what will be the form of the punishment. Remember, as I've said, electricity generation constitutes only 32% of these carbon dioxide much despised emissions. Emissions from agriculture represent 14%, transport 15%. Well, now, Rishi Sunak is a candidate for the Prime Ministership of Britain, as you know. He was at that Glasgow conference as the Chancellor last November. And as Chancellor, he pledged action. He didn't urge it. He pledged it to, quote, rewire the entire financial system for net zero, unquote. What will that mean for people, not just in electricity generation, but in agriculture or transport and in everyday life? Never mentioned by Bowen or Albanese. Westpac, we're told, are the last bank to join the United Nations convened Net Zero Banking Alliance. What we haven't been told is that a stack of financial institutions have signed up to a, quote, Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. They collectively hold assets, these financial institutions, worth over $130 trillion. Trillion. The then British Chancellor Sunak hoping to be Prime Minister, but he won't be, described this financial alliance for net zero as, quote, an historic wall of capital for the net zero transition around the world. Now, we've been told none of this. The bloke behind all of this is the former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, who said in October 2019, listen to the blackmail, quote, firms that align their business models through the transition to a net zero world will be rewarded handsomely, those who fail to adapt will cease to exist." Unquote. Get those words? Those who fail to adapt, could be you, will cease to exist. In other words, you won't get the money. Rishi Sunak in Glasgow was reading from Carney's script because it's Carney who's been instrumental in bringing together the Glasgow Financial Alliance. It was this bloke, Carney, who said, we must build a financial system entirely focused on net zero. That means 
banks, superannuation funds, pension funds, operating with other people's money, and that will apparently be used to pursue illusory net zero goals. So here are bankers and financiers and government ministers not talking about risk or prudential care of our money, but eating some ideological sandwich to secure an illusory goal 30 years down the track. Rishi Sunak boasting that the financial world who control our money and to whom our money is lent will do the heavy lifting, quote, rewiring the entire financial system for net zero. But the money these zealots are talking about comes from you, from us, the taxpayer, the consumer. That's our deposits, or it's our super. If bank lending is to be predicated on meeting social and environmental goals, then we have the makings of a major financial crisis. Perhaps these people have forgotten the savings and loans crisis in America, which involved over 3,000 savings and loan associations where banks were induced by government to provide credit to, quote, socially worthy sectors like housing. Are we going to allow, in other words, lend money? You must lend money to these people because they're socially deprived. They're entitled to a house like everybody else. So you must lend money. Are we going to, no worry about prudential care of the money, uh-uh, socially, socially directed. Are we going to allow our banking system without debate to cross-subsidise net zero and risk a financial crisis that would make 2008 pale into insignificance? Newcastle in New South Wales has the world's largest coal export port. Early last year, the ANZ Bank refused to keep funding the facility under its climate change policy of banning loans to the coal sector. And the CEO of ANZ, Shane Elliott, whom I offered to come on the program, but they can't answer the question, you see. He proffered the rubbish that they won't deal with business customers, quote, if we don't see an alignment of values, unquote. The woke brigade are alive and well. All these people have now been inspired by the knowledge that these net zero emission goals will be set in legislation. Yet only a week ago, the International Energy Agency said that coal consumption will rise to 8 billion tonnes this year, reaching a new high mark around the world of 8.03 billion tonnes next year. Can someone tell China about all this nonsense? It's fortifying its energy security, good on them, its independence and its wealth with its plentiful supply of domestic coal. To the dumb and the duplicitous, pick which team you're on, we emit 433 million tonnes of carbon dioxide. China emits 25 times that amount. In other words, each year we emit a fortnight's worth of China's emissions each year. Can Mr Bowen and his acolytes tell us, after all of this, when we can expect to see global temperatures reducing as a result of having signed the National Economic Suicide Note? Well, as I said last night, we are facing critical times in relation to China, and in particular, the relationship between the leader of the free world, America, and China. The Nancy Pelosi visit to Taiwan is now throwing up critical issues. And I'll go to Peggy, uh, Peggy Grandy, who is the former executive assistant to the American president who championed freedom, Ronald Reagan. But Peggy, before we get onto that, welcome again. We love having you on the program, but there is a story in the last hour a couple of hours that has overtaken all of this. The FBI have raided Donald Trump's residence in Florida. What do you know about that? 
Well, the details are still coming out and thank you, Alan, for having me on as always. And this is something that's unprecedented and potentially illegal. Nobody even knows what the search warrant said. Nobody knows what the process was that they went to go through it, but you would have to assume that it would have been a very strenuous process to be able to serve a warrant like this on the former president's home. Now, he was not home at the time, but apparently upwards of 50 FBI agents searched every part of the office, broke into his personal safe, and removed up to 15 boxes from the premises without previously searching them on premises, which is, is how it's supposed to be done. So nobody knows exactly what's happening, but there's a sure suspicion about not only the timing of this, but the political motivation of this. And frankly, the American people are not going to be happy about this, because if you can weaponize the DOJ and the FBI against a former president, think how it could be weaponized against the average American person who certainly doesn't have the support and infrastructure around to protect themselves like he does. Extraordinary. Let me get, well, we'll have more on that, of course, as time passes. But just let me go to an equally extraordinary but critical issue. On July 28, which is, as I'm speaking to you, 12 days ago, what do we know as fact is that the American President Biden spoke with the Chinese President Xi. The conversation allegedly went for over two hours, though, as I've previously said, I suspect the Chinese leader might have been hanging on at the end, wondering whether or not Biden had fallen asleep. But, Peggy, following that meeting, the telephone call became a tale of two versions. The White House, and this is critical in relation to the Pelosi visit to Taiwan, the White House was insisting that Biden had scolded the Chinese President Xi about forced labour and genocide involving the Uyghur Muslims. But China says that's fake news and Biden never raised either topic in the call between the two men. Peggy, what are we to make of this? Well, it's certainly interesting times when China is calling out fake news, right? And uh, I don't know if she was laughing on the other end of the line. Um, he was probably laughing, not falling asleep, because Biden has become a joke. He has shown nothing but weakness. And remember that this all started with the Democrats, because it started with a call with Putin and a call with Zelensky when Donald Trump was president. And the Democrats demanded that these call transcripts be released. And this had never been done before. And I actually believe that the president of the United States has a right to have a private call with leaders all over the world and outside of the scope and scrutiny of the media and the public. Um, but that was not what the Democrats wanted. They demanded these transcripts be released. And I think they thought Donald Trump would put up a fight, but instead he called their bluff and he said, fine, release the transcripts. And in fact, he said, it was a perfect call. It was a beautiful call, remember? And so that's how that went out. And so now the Democrats are saying, no, we shouldn't have to release these transcripts, but they're the one who started this. And that's so now right. there is an expectation yep, from yep. the public and the press yep. that we're going to see these transcripts. Right. Well, let's pursue this because China's official readout of the call said that President Xi warned of the Pelosi plan to visit Taiwan. And Chinese officials later backed that version of the call by saying that Biden was warned that a visit by the speaker would be seen as an invasion of China itself. Now, in response to questions, the White House press secretary declined to confirm or deny that Xi said anything of the sort about Pelosi. So, Peggy, until we know what is in this phone conversation, the truth is the casualty. 
Right. And, you know, regardless of what the phone call was or wasn't, I think the bigger point here is that there's no trust in the American people's um, listening to the president and what comes out of the White House. And so are we to trust China more than we trust our own president of the United States? There's a complete a distrust of anything that comes out of this White House and it's putting us not only as a nation, but to your point, the world in a much less safe place. Right. Is he calling out bullies and tyrants around the world? Is somebody like she threatening um, in a way that we should be concerned and respond? Yep. And we don't have those answers. So do we know whether Biden delivered on his promise to stand up for human rights? I mean, did we don't know whether China effectively threatened World War III if Pelosi went ahead with the visit. Peggy, surely these questions are straightforward and the answers should be too. So we come back to the point you made. Should the White House release portions of the call transcript that relate to those issues? Well, they absolutely should, but we know absolutely they will not because it will make Biden look weak. China has been increasingly aggressive, not only with Taiwan, but all around the world. And so they are seizing every opportunity to show strength. And Biden and his administration are showing every opportunity to show weakness. Whether or not she threatened this, the fact that Pelosi went anyway shows that Biden is not only weak domestically because he couldn't stop charge. Nancy Pelosi yeah. from going. But he's weak internationally, too, because China then, what did they do? Proceeded to launch missiles at Taiwan. And so weakness abounds both domestically and internationally, and it's making us all less safe. Yeah, I mean, both these issues, this is, uh, to me, to our viewers, I'll just say, and Peggy shares this view, this is very, very, very critical stuff, this. What happened in that phone call? Because the issues raised represent important elements of American foreign policy and world foreign policy, but the Taiwan matter is critical. Just come back again. We don't know, therefore, Peggy, whether Biden was told that a visit by the Speaker would be seen as an invasion of China itself. Now, Biden's already caused confusion, hasn't he, about what America would do in response to a Chinese invasion. On three occasions, he said America would defend Taiwan militarily, but three times White House aides walked back on those statements saying that wasn't US policy, that US policy is limited to selling Taiwan equipment to defend itself. Peggy, how do Americans know what is the American policy on Taiwan? Well, Biden has made it very ambiguous. He says he supports the one China policy, but he also supports the independence of Taiwan. And, you know, the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979 it is reinforced by Congress regularly, and it enforces security and trading um, do deals between us and Taiwan. And so that is something that stands. And so how that, um, you know, squares with our relationship with China right now is really interesting, especially as Xi is going into the party conference where he's looking for his third term yep, um, yep. as leader. And yep. these are very dangerous times. We need to have the truth and all of the truth. And we're not getting that at all. That's right. I mean, if Biden was told that a visit by Pelosi would be regarded by China as grounds for Chinese threats of military action, then plainly America would be seen by China as not complying and the consequence would be war. I mean, this is a critical geopolitical issue, Peggy, isn't it? I mean, it makes it important that the American public know not only what Xi said on that in that phone conversation 12 days ago, but exactly how Biden responded. And we looked like, Peggy, not knowing the answer to either of those questions. 
Yeah. Well, and this White House and Congress should be working in conjunction with each other. And we see them working in opposition of each other. And again, China laughs at that because there's strength when we're united and there's weakness when we're divided. And so Pelosi very much thumbed her nose at the White House. And now there's evidence coming out that actually the White House leaked this, not Pelosi's office. And so I think they did it as a deterrent for her to not go. And what did she do? She went anyway. And so she really is self-serving in this. We believe now, and it just came out today, perhaps her son was on that plane and went with her to Taiwan. And so what were the business motives or the future motives for somebody who's about to lose her speakership to go to Taiwan and take her son with her? Can you imagine if a child did that? See, Peggy, until we know it's in that telephone conversation, one possibility is that Biden promised Xi that Pelosi wouldn't make the visit. Now, that wouldn't be surprising if Biden subsequently said that a stop in Taiwan was, quote, not a good idea. Therefore, there's, there's no, there's a complete mess up between the Speakership and the White House. There are reports that the administration privately urged Pelosi to skip Taiwan on the trip. Peggy, let me raise this, a further significant domestic issue. Biden and Pelosi may not be on the same foreign policy page. Now, Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell was right in saying that for Pelosi not to go after all of his hoo-ha, it would mean China dictating terms to America. But all this pictures and turns on what took place in the phone call. It does. It does. And then what's also pivotal is what was the military's involvement or awareness of this as well? Because Biden said that the military was caught off guard and was concerned about her going. And so... When you show that kind of weakness, um, China is just capitalizing on that. We should never tell China that we're worried because we should have the strongest military in the world. We shouldn't fear anything. We shouldn't let anybody dictate where our political leaders can and cannot go. People have made trips to Taiwan as um, high level officials for years and it's never been a problem in the past. So what has changed? The difference now is we have a weak president, we have a weak White House, we have a White House, a military and a Congress that are not communicating well with each other, and she is laughing at it yeah. every step along well, the let's way. Take the so further... who knows what was said? Yeah. We okay. know he has strength and we have weakness. Sorry to, to interrupt you, but there's a further issue, isn't it? This fact, and it's an undisputed fact, that Hunter Biden, his brother Jim Biden, and other longtime family associates received more than $11 million from a Chinese conglomerate with ties to the Communist Party. Joe Biden was vice president when that arrangement began in 2015. And there's been speculation, if not solid evidence, that Biden was the big guy in line for a secret 10% cut of the expected billions in a joint venture. Peggy, surely this this brings us to the so-called FBI investigation of Hunter Biden, which has been going on for four years without a single indictment being filed. Do Republicans feel the FBI is dragging its feet to protect the president. Well, absolutely, and they are, because there is all kinds of video and other evidence that indicts Hunter Biden, indicts his family, indicts his own father. And they're turning a blind eye to that. And remember, this is the same DOJ and FBI that called Donald Trump an agent of Russia and said he was a foreign agent and he was compromised. It's Joe Biden who is compromised. There is evidence to this. The American people know it. And you know what? The media hid this 
so that Joe Biden could be elected. But now we're seeing Joe Biden be thrown under the bus by his own media and by the left because they are seeing this disastrous presidency. They know he can't be reelected in 2024. And so we're going to see increasingly they're going to start to sink that Biden ship. It's right. already happening. Great to talk to you. I'll tell you what, there'll be a lot to talk about next week. I suspect a fair bit's going to happen between now. Oh, my now. goodness, there is, Alan. <laughs> That's right. Now and next Tuesday. Lovely to talk to you, Peggy. Your insights are extraordinary. Thank you so much for your time. How good is she? There Thank she you, is. Alan. Peggy Grandy, big issues in America. So Matt Keane has been elected the deputy leader of the Liberal Party in New South Wales, unopposed. The man you heard last night, David Elliott, forced by the factions to withdraw and the Premier, Dominic Perrottet, supporting Matthew Keane. Look at the grin on his face. This is effectively the end of the Liberal government in New South Wales. Good night. Liberal supporters will not cop Matt Keane. He's a nice enough bloke, but on policy and the pursuit of power, he is unhinged. I might add, in the Barillaro controversy, Matt Keane is known to have encouraged John Barillaro to apply for the job and said, and I quote, he didn't really have it, give it a second thought. Loyalty? On any number of occasions when the Morrison government was struggling, Keane was a vocal critic. When Catherine Deves was chosen to contest the federal seat of Warringah, Keane was a repetitive and outspoken critic. And when a journalist tweeted her perceived inconsistency in the treatment of Alini Patinos and Stuart Ayres, Matt Keane was quick to reply, oh my God, yes, thank you for pointing that out, an utter disgrace, unquote. In other words, his leader's treatment of both issues was an utter disgrace. He's now deputy to that leader. And he'd have you believe he's loyal to Perrottet when he spends his waking hours counting the leadership numbers, just as Turnbull did in the Federal Party. Similar people. It was only in June this year that the Liberal MP Catherine Cusack released details of private conversations with Matt Keane. This was when the Berejiklian government was struggling over the koala issue in 2020. Catherine Cusack argued that Gladys Berejiklian sent Matt Keane to see her to secure her vote. She told Keane the koala bill was, quote, a stain on your reputation as the environment minister, unquote. Keane was angry and argued in reply, quote, that's rubbish. I am one of the greatest, probably the greatest environment minister in Australian history, unquote. At the time, John Barillaro was Deputy Premier, opposing what the Liberals were planning to do, read the koala population. Catherine Cusack said Matthew Keane had encouraged her to condemn Barillaro, his colleague, Deputy Leader, Deputy Premier, to condemn Barillaro to the media. His exact words to her, quote, have you thought about going out and slamming the gnats on this koala thing, unquote? This bloke today has been elected unopposed as deputy liberal leader, but he's also the treasurer. We're facing inflationary pressures based on spending. In New South Wales, there is a Fiscal Responsibility Act passed in 2012. Premier Mike Baird, who knew something about money, was the author. The purpose of the act is, no matter floods, bushfires or viruses, government outlays must remain below long-term average expense growth. That is the law. That law has been broken not once, not twice, but three times by Dominic Perrottet as Treasurer and now Matt Keane. The budget that was brought down on June 21 in New South Wales took New South Wales on a $27 billion spending spree. Annual expenditure growth of 26.5% in total breach 
of the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Net debt in New South Wales, 115 billion. Gross debt, 182 billion. And in a budget of 95 billion, the only savings were $32 million, million. Remember the $25 million for the flag on the bridge? Let me say this, there is no precedent in Australian politics for this level of extravagance. Gough Whitlam was excoriated in 1974 for a budget which increased outlays by 24.7%. People thought the record would never be broken. Keen, this budget, this year, 26.5%. Matt Keane will tell you he's the greatest. Well, he is. The greatest spender, the greatest public debt accumulator, the greatest waste of taxpayers' money in New South Wales history. I discussed all this some weeks ago with Mark Latham, who called Keane the kamikaze pilot of state fiscal management. $10 billion of your money allocated to green energy, because he's the green energy minister, to reduce global surface temperatures by 0.00055 degrees over a century. $10 billion, your money. As Mark Latham said, Keane has, quote, turned the New South Wales Treasury into an ATM for his green energy Photios dust programs, unquote. This man has been rewarded today unopposed as deputy leader. We've got rising inflation, rising interest rates, capacity constraints, supply chain blockages, and a full-blown international and domestic energy crisis, and a treasurer with expenditure growth of 26.5%. 1.5 billion in subsidies for electric vehicles, for those wealthy enough to purchase a $65,000 car. 3.6 million to refurbish the treasury offices. Who's the treasurer? Oh yeah, he is. To refurbish the treasury offices where staff because of coronavirus haven't been for 18 months. As a politician, Keane is a manipulator, a backroom factional warrior. As a minister, he's taken New South Wales on an extravagant journey that it cannot afford. Well, The Liberal Party have made their bed today. Now they must lie on it. Come March, the Liberal government are history. They wrote that history today. Well, as you all know, there are major geopolitical issues virtually on our doorstep and a few domestic ones to boot. Let's go to the outstanding foreign editor of the Australian newspaper, Greg Sheridan, to seek his clarifying views. Greg, thank you for your time. Look, look, just a quick one on Donald Trump, though. None of us are armed with a lot of information. What are we to make of an FBI raid on Donald Trump's Florida home when, in fact, the inquiries into Hillary Clinton and Hunter Biden seem to have made no progress at all? Uh, well, you're right, Alan, we're operating on limited knowledge. The The FBI inquiry into Hillary Clinton during the 2016 campaign did her enormous damage, and um, she had certainly mismanaged official um, State Department emails and so on. Uh, Trump lives his life flirting on the edge of illegality all the time, and um, I don't know whether he, he has a genius for just staying you know, one degree on the right side of the law <laughs> in the most ambiguous. He's like the Chinese Communist Party, you know, yes, he's finished right. what you call grey zone, grey zone activities. Yes. So, I mean, we'll, we'll just have to see what the FBI had here. They, I mean, they're alleging he's, he's stolen or misused or misappropriated um, classified documents. Uh, honestly, if he's done that, that's probably the least of his crimes. Yes, I mean, returning something to the archives. Um, is this, though, a weaponisation 
of the justice system or uh, the radical left Democrats who don't want Biden, uh, Trump to run for the presidency? Uh, look, it probably is. Uh, Trump, the greatest asset Trump has had has been his enemies. So I, I think Trump has, since the last election, behaved absolutely contemptibly. I, I mean, I think he is... Dick Cheney, the most conservative person ever to be vice president, said he is the most dangerous man to American democracy in the history of America. I think that's true. But um, at the same time, his enemies accuse him of many things that he didn't do. So his greatest asset, the only time I ever feel a smidgen of sympathy for Trump is when I hear the Democrats, uh, you know, making up stuff about Russian collusion and so on. You know, that's the, the only thing that can move me to feel any sympathy for Trump at all is to hear a Democratic congressman or CNN uh, making stuff up about Trump. But in this in this particular matter, it may be that the FBI has a basis for action. Otherwise, they know it's going to be very heavily scrutinised and the, House, the Republicans are likely to win the House in November and that their actions will be heavily scrutinised. So maybe there's a basis there. Uh, I, I honestly don't know. All right, let's just go to this big issue about China and Taiwan. Nancy Pelosi, Taiwan and the Chinese response. There have to be serious concerns, don't they, Greg, with the Biden administration, because Pelosi goes, Biden's on the record as saying that a stop in Taiwan was, quote, not a good idea, and that the administration privately urged her to skip Taiwan on the trip. So are Biden and Pelosi on the same foreign policy page? Well, it's a very good question, Alan. I mean, uh, I think Biden has handled this with unbelievable incompetence uh, and he's looked weak in all directions. First of all, he should not have tried to stop Nancy Pelosi from going. But if he did want to stop her from going, the fact that he couldn't shows how weak he is. He couldn't even influence Nancy Pelosi. But then the fact that he wouldn't support her going properly shows how weak he is in the opposite direction. He's too weak to stand up to the Chinese He's too weak to prevail on Nancy Pelosi. And his whole manner is so incoherent and doddering. I, I don't have an age prejudice here, Alan. Mm. I think you're just a fraction younger than Joe Biden. But <laughs> if you were the president of the United States, I'd have full confidence that you were <laughs> right you. on top of everything. But I, <laughs> I, I must say, Pelosi, who is not my favourite politician, she seems a lot sharper and more on the ball than, uh, than Biden himself. What do you make, therefore, in the light of all of this, of the Chinese response? Uh, it has been nothing short of extraordinary. I mean, the Taiwanese army has said that 20 communist planes and 14 ships were detected in the waters around Taiwan conducting joint exercises. With that Biden leadership that you've just alluded to, do China believe they can please themselves? Well, Alan, I think the Chinese response is extremely disturbing. So I had a column in today's paper. I, I suggested there are three reasons for what China's done. First of all, there's a bit of domestic politics in it. China doesn't really have politics, but Xi Jinping wants to look strong yeah, and he's yeah. using nationalism to distract yeah. the people from their, you know, the, his generally failed economic policies. His economic policy has been very unsuccessful. Secondly, he wants to scare all the neighbours, especially Taiwan, and he wants to set up both within Taiwan and within the US a kind of uh, an argument for preemptive surrender. Resistance is futile. Look how mighty and massive we are. And thirdly, what is very disturbing, I think these are really active uh, operational rehearsals for yes. operations. This yes. is what the Chinese might well do if they decide to blockade Taiwan. And it's a very big, complex operation. You've got to get 
Air Force, Navy, Army, missiles, cyber, satellites, everything operating together. And to be able to rehearse it on full scale is an important step to being able to do it. Now, all of that, I think, is profoundly disturbing. Joe Biden has just got a trillion dollars of extra money out of Congress. Not one dollar of it is going on military preparedness or shifting the US military to make it more capable to deal with, uh, with China. And we in this country, you know, our submarines are coming yeah. in Star Trek time, our frigates are coming, mm. you know, when my, my five-year-old grandson will be too old to serve on yes. our submarines, our frigates are coming in the 30s and 40s. So I think the Albanese government has to really get cracking and acquire capabilities that are relevant for us, missiles, mm. drones, uh, mm. uh, more ships, maybe a conventional submarine um, uh, in the meantime. And if we don't do that, I think we're, we're just... Um, yeah, well, metaphor <laughs> metaphorically, Greg, I keep saying we couldn't defend ourselves against a, a, a barrow full of marbles, I mean, in the light of the resources that are available That's to right. us. But in relation to China, 100 warplanes... Around the median line, for our viewers, that's the line which divides democratically governed, governed Taiwan from China, and 22 fighter jets crossing the line. Do you agree with the Taiwanese concern that China, just to clarify what you've just said, was practicing a blockade and was practicing a simulation of an ultimate invasion, which leads to your conclusion in a piece you've just written? You've said this is most probably one of the most dangerous weeks with the Western world has had in relation to a likely, the likelihood of war. Yes, well, I do agree with the Taiwanese, absolutely. This is a, this is a serious military operation. In a sense, it's even worse than that, because when the Chinese decide to take action against Taiwan, one lesson they will have learnt from the Russians in Ukraine is don't give your enemies any notice and make it overwhelming blitzkrieg as fast as possible. So they might claim they're having an exercise one day and then suddenly the exercise becomes yeah. reality. Yeah. So I think it is both a genuine rehearsal where they can try things out, see what works, what doesn't work, how difficult it is to coordinate all the arms of their military. And then there's a second dimension, which is even worse, that they might be plan pretending to have an exercise one day and then all of a sudden uh, actually go on the attack. Now, they would be taking an enormous risk because the retaliatory power of the United States is enormous and their own economy, the Chinese economy, would suffer massive dislocation. But, you know, through history, Alan, big powers and especially dictatorships, they do take risks. That's it. They take risks for geopolitical purposes. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, this is a really uh, very disturbing moment in our history. Well, you quoted in the piece that you have written, I think it was today, that this is a difficult week and we may be on the brink of war and so on, but you quoted the text of President Xi's conversation with Joe Biden. Now, that was 12 days ago. I raised this earlier with Peggy Grandy, that those who play with fire will perish by it. But, Greg, there's no release of the transcript. Biden's White House is saying that in that two hours and 17 minutes phone conversation, he challenged Xi on human rights issues. China are saying nothing of the kind happened. They warned Biden that those who play with fire will perish by it. How do we know where the truth lies? Well, we don't, Alan. And I must say, you know, anecdotally, I've had a lot of this experience in Australian contexts. I remember um, going to an Australian Prime Minister's briefing and he said, I raised with... Um, 
you know, the counterpart prime minister of the other nation, this matter. And then I quickly ducked down the corridor and went to the briefing from the other country and asked them. And they said, no, no, that matter was never raised, you know. And when I tried to sort it out later on, the pathetic kind of Canberra response was, oh, they mentioned it in the corridor while they were walking up after the formal meeting. So that the truth is, you know, without being too cynical about it, leaders tell you lies all the time. Now, yep. if we're relying on Joe Biden's memory, we've got no idea what was said no. because he couldn't remember what he had for breakfast. No. But it's possible, it's possible that, you know, he mentioned human rights in some, um, you know, some rambling uh, speech or something. He didn't uh, deny that Xi Jinping said the, the fire line, and that's a very rhetorical line very. for one president to say to another. For yes. Xi Jinping... To virtually threaten the American yes. president, he who plays with fire yes. will die by fire. I mean, that's that's a strange sort of thing for one president Absolutely. to say to another. Mm. Well, the transcripts so relevant. The transcripts relevant to these issues should be released by the White House. I mean, and they won't be because I suspect that they've been fiddling with the truth. And it'll just come closer to home. Um, I made some comments earlier today. Penny Wong and Richard Miles seem to be making all the right noises, albeit with limited capacity to support the things that they're saying. But you have said, if we, that is Australia, don't try our very best to understand what has happened as a consequence of this visit and make our own provisions arising from that understanding, we are a nation of fools. Uh, I would suspect, though, on the basis of our failure to adequately resource our defences, we are a nation of fools, aren't we? Well, Alan, we've behaved that way so far. So the last 15 years have been appalling. The Rudd-Gillard-Rudd governments and then the Abbott, you know, I love Tony Abbott, but the Abbott-Turnbull, Abbott had good plans, but he was defenestrated. The Abbott-Turnbull and Morrison governments, take them all together over 15 years. This has been an appalling failure to shape our defence force properly. You know, we've had this ridiculous submarine saga. We're no nearer to a submarine now than we were 25 years ago. The only subs in my lifetime which have been brought into service were the ones commissioned by Bob Hawke. We don't have missiles. We don't have a single armed drone. You've seen what drones have done in Ukraine. We're the only... We spend $50 billion a year on defence. We don't have a single armed drone. We've got tanks. How are we going to use tanks to keep the Chinese at bay in the South China Sea or in our maritime approaches? We've got heavy infantry fighting vehicles which are perfect for use in Iraq or Afghanistan. But guess what? Our problems are not in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. Our surface combat fleet is pathetically underarmed. These ageing Anzac frigates, which are good sort of for, to police illegal fishing, but have, have no capacity to deal with a Chinese warplane. We're down to about 80 fast jets, not even at our normal complement of 100. We have not taken the business of defending ourselves seriously because we think the Americans will always do it for us. Absolutely. But psychologically, we are the equivalent of the Afghan government before the fall of Kabul. Mm -hmm. We just can't imagine that the Americans won't do it for us. No one is more pro-American than me, but I think this level of dependence is very, very dangerous. Uh, absolutely. I agree. And listen, before we go, it's always wonderful to talk to you and your insights are very, very special. Just one question. Uh, there's a referendum apparently going to come up where we're asked uh, to answer yes or no to a question as to whether or not, I think the question is by the Albanese government, to establish an elected voice to parliament exclusively for Indigenous people. Should we vote yes or no? Now, look, I'll be voting no, Andrew. So, uh, Alan, sorry, sorry, Alan. Um, I, uh, 
I admire and esteem Aboriginal culture and I wish for the advancement and betterment of all Aboriginal Australians as with all other Australians. But I'm an old-fashioned Liberal on race. I don't believe race should have any part in civic status. I agree. I don't think race has any bearing on how good a person you are or what civic status you should be. And I think for us to introduce a race-based provision into our constitution, apparently an elected body which members of only one race can vote for, that means, by the way, the government has to go and determine what race everybody is. I don't want the government doing that. And I think this this is very bad for Aboriginal Australians because Mm. it defines them forever as different Mm. from their fellow Australians. Absolutely. So I'm I'm going to vote no, No, Alan, myself. and, And so will I. I've already made that point quite clear. Greg, great to talk to you. We'll talk to you again. Your insights are very special. Thank you for your time and your scholarship. Thanks so much, Alan. Thank you. Outstanding, isn't he? There is Greg Sheridan, the foreign editor of the Australian newspaper. Look, before we go any further, a happy birthday to the great Rod Laver. Rodney Laver turns 84 today. And the Commonwealth Games have ended. I can't think of a Commonwealth Games which has had a greater impact than this one. Birmingham deserves the highest congratulations. I hate the boasting about medals. That's not what it is about. There were thousands of athletes there who didn't win a medal but achieve personal bests. And that's what we're encouraging people to do in life as well as in sport. I hope the corporate world out there will latch onto some of these young people and help them. Brooke Stratton, now married, Brooke Bushkool, has had injuries, all sorts of problems. She's a magnificent long jumper, world-class, no sponsors. Fifth in the world, struggling to make ends meet. It shouldn't be. Georgia Baker claimed the women's road race gold medal, 112 kilometres, do you mind? And out of a splendid team, Georgia sprinted to gold. Then you had the Adelaide dentist, Paul Burnett, in hellish temperatures with Chris McHugh. They won gold in beach volleyball. Said Paul Burnett of his gold medal, dentistry is something I'm keeping in my back pocket for now. It's hard to get feelings like this from looking at people's teeth. And then the diving. The Australian Cassiel Rousseau, with an astonishing last dive, gave him the highest score for any dive in the competition and a gold medal. 21 years of age and he trains in Brisbane. His grandfather, Michel, won cycling gold for France at the 1956 Melbourne Olympics. He wants to honour his grandfather's memory by winning a medal for Australia in Paris in 2024. Some great coaching, by the way, in the sport of diving. Madison Keeney, born in Auckland but now an Australian, proved herself one of Australia's best divers in some time after battling injury. 24 hours after teaming with Belle Smith to win the synchronised title, Madison Keeney collected another gold by doing the individual three-metre springboard event in brilliant fashion. Just like young Russo, she was trailing the Malaysian girl after the first three dives, and then Madison Keeney snatched the outright lead with a dazzling three-and-a-half forward somersault. For a young lady at 26 with injuries, out of competition, out of the pool for a couple of years, and come back to win this two gold medals. Terrific stuff. But what was going on in the women's cricket? They are a superb side and won the gold, as I mentioned last night. But moments before the match, Talia McGrath, the brilliant all-rounder, tested positive for COVID. She was allowed to play, to bat, to bowl and to field, but her presence sparked a lot of consternation amongst the Indian team, the other team in the final. 
You might recall eight months ago, Pat Cummins, the Australian cricket captain, had to sit out an Ashes test because he happened to stand near somebody at an Adelaide restaurant who happened to have coronavirus. Then remember, there were strict, strict protocols with the Australian team in Birmingham, but they shredded their stay safe pronouncements by sending a cricketer with COVID into the fray. As one Indian journalist asked, didn't Australia stop Novak Djokovic because he wasn't vaccinated? How can they now play a COVID-positive player? The POMs were no less displeased because, remember, Australia last December took a hardline view to the English Test cricket side and submitted them when they arrived in Australia to a 14-day quarantine. And then Australia, in conjunction with New Zealand, forced last year's Rugby League World Cup in England to be scrapped. Anyway, Taylor McGrath contributed to Australia's T20 triumph. And look, one non-Australian story concerns the Southern African country of Zambia. Population a bit over 8 million, but it's a country that ranks amongst those with the highest levels of poverty and inequality in the world. A country of well over 30 different ethnic groups, per capita income, 4,000 a year, Zambia. Out of all that comes a 19-year-old, Muzala Samukonga, who won Zambia's first ever Commonwealth Games 400 metre title in a brilliant 44.66 seconds. He's 19. He exited the stadium, I might add, in a wheelchair after tripping over a low advertising hoarding as he ran to collect his national flag. There's a name for you. 19 years of age from Zambia, Muzala Samukonga. I've spoken before, and I'll have a bit to say in just a moment, about Sri Lanka broke and bankrupt, well, nine athletes and a manager have vanished after completing their events. Sri Lankan management hold all the passports of all members to ensure they return home, but it failed to deter the 10 from leaving. It is a very sad state, isn't it, that greed and corruption in public administration can lead people to disown their country. Well, on a very sad note, it's almost too much for us to bear, isn't it? Two magnificent voices stilled. First, Judith Durham, as I said last night, with the pure crystalline voice who never believed she could sing. I don't know how many of you are lovers of Dusty Springfield, but it was her brother Tom who wrote the hit songs like I Will Never Find Another You, which topped the UK and Australian charts, A World of Our Own, The Carnival Is Over, which made The Seekers in the early 60s Britain's highest selling act, beating The Hollies, Elvis and The Beatles. And then early today, we learned that the beautiful, inside and out, Dame Olivia Newton-John had been turned loose from this life. She's died of cancer at the age of 73. No matter what generation you belong to, we'll never forget Olivia in her starring role opposite John Travolta in the film adaptation of the Broadway musical Grease. Olivia is the most successful solo artist Australia has ever produced, selling 100 million records worldwide. She comes from a distinguished family. Her Jewish maternal grandfather was the Nobel Prize winning physicist Max Born and her father Bryn was an associate professor in German at Newcastle University, having also been the master of Ormond College at the University of Melbourne. As the romantic poet Shelley argued in his poem Adonais, Olivia is now a portion of the loveliness which once she made more lovely. And look, before we go to Fred, and as I just mentioned about Sri Lanka, we haven't forgotten about our Sri Lankan friends. They've been badly let down for years by a corrupt government, 
led by the so-called political dynasty, the Rajapaksas. I'll tell you what, we talk here about a federal anti-corruption body. Well, there wouldn't be one big enough for the Rajapaksas. They initially ruled Sri Lanka from 2005 to 2015. During the five-year hiatus, 2015 to 2020, the constitution was changed to ensure presidential powers were trimmed, such as limiting presidential terms to two and creating independent oversight bodies. But the Rajapaksas objected to these democratic changes and launched a relentless political comeback, and they succeeded. Since 2020, they've run the country into the ground. They reduced reserves to just about US $50 million, stalling imports and causing massive shortages of food, fuel and medicine. Then, Sri Lanka could no longer service its foreign debt. The government slashed spending, raised taxes, causing widespread protests where shops were shut by a curfew and troops were deployed. Finally, the protesters won the day, storming the presidential palace and taking their country back from the Rajapaksas. Gotabaya Rajapaksa was forced to flee the country, as gutless wonders do. But what comes next is anyone's guess. Ranil Wickremesinghe took over as president on July 21. The burden of this awful economic mess now falls on him. But many see him as a puppet of the Rajapaksas, perhaps why protesters burnt down his home, why the parliament did not elect someone else who didn't have a close affiliation with the past, I've got no idea. Wickremesinghe was first elected to the legislature way back in 1977. Some are questioning his aggressive methods, bordering on authoritarianism. He's described protesters as fascists. Someone needs to tell this bloke that there's a reason why Sri Lankans are upset and hurt. It's because they feel betrayed by the political class. The economic freefall being heaped on these people is a result of government greed and mismanagement. Sure, there are external factors pushing up the cost of living everywhere, but domestically, the Rajapaksas ran up billion dollar debts on vanity projects. Hang on, billion dollar debts on vanity projects? When I say that out loud, it reminds me of a politician here. That's right, isn't it? Matt Keane, the bloke who's spending $3 billion of your money, New South Wales taxpayers' money, on his green energy roadmap which will apparently create 10,000 new jobs. Even if it did, that would be 300,000 per job. If that's not a billion dollar vanity project, then I don't know one. Well, there you are, that's it from me tonight. Stay watching as Fred Paul takes you into the next hour, where he speaks with the splendid South Australian Senator Alex Antich and Alexandra Marshall from The Spectator. I'll see you tomorrow night. Good night, you're watching ADH-TV.